So just if you haven't been with us or if you've been gone for a while or back, just a little recap of where we've been the last couple of weeks, uh, well, last, gosh, couple of months. We've been in this series talking about what is the church. We were preaching through the Gospel of John, and then we took a break in this fall. I just wanted to step back and take some time to think about the bride, the blood-bought bride of Christ, the church, and to ask a lot of questions about it, like what is it? And so when we first started the series... I said, if you were on the street and you're walking down the road and somebody came up to you and they asked you, hey, you you get dressed on Sundays, I see that you get up and you go to this thing called a church and uh, you you help set up chairs, you do all this stuff and you go and it takes all morning and you go home and uh, what is this thing? What is the church? And so we took some time and we unpacked what the church is. And we would say that the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. It's a people from every tribe and tongue. So it, it uh, crosses cultures. It crosses generations. Uh, the church is God's new covenant people. And then after we figured out who we are, that blood-bought people, then we started to ask questions about well, what are we called to do? What's our mission? That's who we are. We are God's people, God's new covenant people. We're the bride of Christ. We are those who have turned from sin and placed our faith in Jesus. If that's who we are, what are we called to? What are we called to do? How are we called to live? What's the mission of the church? And we looked at several passages like Matthew 28, which is known as the Great Commission, right, where we're called to go to the nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey or observe all that Christ commanded. That's our mission. Make disciples. That's that's it. So if you're asking, like, what are all the things that a church is supposed to do? You're in a church planting class, and, and they say, hey, Dave, we want you to go plant a church in Mankato, and if you want to do that, we can talk after, after church, but we want you to go plant a church somewhere, the Bolivian jungle wherever you go and then this Dave says okay I'll do that and then once I do once I gather believers into a a group what are we called to do what's the mission and here's the answer for the exam it's one thing and that's make disciples that's what the church is called to do make disciples of Jesus and so we, we talked about that, and we looked at Matthew 28, we looked at Acts 1, where we're called to be witnesses to the world, where Jesus looks at his disciples, right? And he says, I, I'm going to send the Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So literally, witnesses to the world. Or we looked at Paul's uh, words to the church in Corinth where he calls, calls them to be ambassadors for Christ. And so we are those who've been called to Jesus and now we're representing Jesus to the world around us. So that's who we are. We're the people of Jesus and we're trying to make disciples of Jesus. That's who the church is and what the church does. But that's not the only questions you can ask about the church. And so for the last couple of sermons or the last few sermon or last week and this week and maybe a couple of more I'm not sure this keeps getting longer um, we're asking how does the church organize so Dave goes to that church and he plants a church in the Bolivian jungle Dave may want to do that I don't know but he goes down and he gathers people together and then you have to ask okay God's church is supposed to be an orderly church Right? There's supposed to be organization. We looked, we just read the passage, Titus 1. There's always a reason for why we're reading things. But what did Paul call Titus to do in Crete? Chapter 1, he says, Titus, I'm leaving you there. And you're call, he calls him to do what? To put things in order. Right? So here's a command. Here's an imperative. Put things in order. And so then we step back and say, well, can we make it up as we go? Just whatever order uh, fits our fancy. 
So no, we go to the Bible. And last week I said that the Bible is sufficient to call us to put things in order. And, and just so we know, the reason, it's like, well, church order just seems like a really boring thing. Why do we talk about it? It doesn't seem very exciting. Uh, it's not something I really want to think about tomorrow. And, and here's the reason for me, it's really exciting. Well, two reasons. There's probably three, but I'll give you two. One is because the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. He owns it. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the master. So we defer to him when we put his bride together. That's the first place I'd start. The second is when we talk about doing things like reaching people around the world, when we talk about making disciples, when we talk about tackling the task or being on mission, well, structure helps us, right? Structure, order helps us accomplish the mission. So as we're talking about putting the church together, what I'm hoping it's doing is helping set us up to more faithfully and effectively make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. So that's the, the aim of this kind of series. Who the church is, what the church does, and now how do we put ourselves together. And so last week we unpacked, we unpacked what it meant put Jesus at the top, right? So every organization has an organizational chart, most, maybe not on paper, at least in somebody's mind. Somebody, so there's some type of leadership structure. So you go to Best Buy, there's probably, there's probably an organizational chart. You go to some churches that are quite large and they have what they call org charts and they have how things are put together. Who's in this department, that department, Zach, uh, Affinity Plus, maybe they have an organizational chart. Somebody knows who's in charge. They know you're in charge of a certain office and so on and so forth. And so there's an organizational chart. And last week, last week we said when you look at the organizational chart of the church, there's somebody on the top. There's somebody sitting at the very top of that org chart, and it's not me. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It's not who's leading worship. It's not you, right? There, there is somebody on the top, and his name is... Jesus. And so last week we wanted to feel the weight of that. We wanted to feel the weight of Jesus' kingship, that He is Lord, He is Master. We are not our own. We push in the opposite direction of our culture, this culture that's committed to radical individualism. I'm my own person. This is my life. This is my family. We have our own little thing over here. Don't speak into it, right? We, we push in that, or our culture pushes in that direction. But the Christian life pushes in the opposite direction. No, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not our own. We've been bought. We've been purchased. Jesus purchased a people for His own possession, right? And so we, we're a people who are, as Loki said, remember the Marvel character? Made to be ruled, but not with a heavy hand. Not with a heavy hand. The rule of Jesus is not a burden. It's a delight. I mean, what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so we wanted to know that and wanted to feel the weight of the fact that Jesus is king of the church. So no matter what we do as a congregation, no matter what decisions we make, we're always asking, is this what Jesus wants? Is this where Jesus would have us go? Is this where, how Jesus would have us spend our money? Is this how Jesus would have us do baptism? Is this how Jesus would have us do membership? Is this how Jesus would have us do anything? Because He's Lord of His people. This is His church. Even now, preaching, I want to decrease and elevate Jesus. 
I'm going to unpack His Word. And I want, if I do it rightly, you to hear His voice, not my own. He may sound like somebody from eastern Kentucky, but I want you to hear His voice, not merely mine. So we wanted to feel that last week. And it's heavy when you think about it. Bowing, our, we use strong language, right? I used powerful language last week, bowing our knee to King Jesus, submitting ourselves to the Lord of the church, master and commander. And this week, I want us to feel not something different, but something that complements it. Namely, that this king loves us, cares for us. I want us to feel what Peter says here at the end of that that amazing passage. He's giving you this picture of Jesus suffering. And he says at the end there, We have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So I want us to feel this week. I want you to know that Jesus is king of the universe. He's not merely your buddy. He's your king. And yet, he's a good king. He's a good shepherd of his sheep. So let me try to capture the flow of this passage, and then we're going to hone in on this idea of shepherd. So just look there at 1 Peter 2, and let me try to summarize, knowing there's lots of complexity here, but just summarize for you the flow of the argument. Peter's calling his readers to endure suffering, right? And this is something that sometimes we don't fully grasp, the, the level of suffering that God's people feel around the world. I don't think we quite understand it, but people in this world are suffering for their faith, and historically, you read the history books, you read church history books, and you read what the earliest Christians went through under the rulership of Nero or Diocletian or others, and you just hear about the massive amounts of suffering and persecution that they had to deal with. And here comes Peter calling them to endure suffering, following the pattern of who? Jesus, right? Who endured unjust suffering on their behalf. It's a great reminder for us. The call, to per- the call for us to persevere in suffering is rooted in our very calling to witness for Christ. You hear that? The, the call to persevere in suffering, in hardship, whether it's, whether it's persecution from your neighbor or in your workplace or hardships in your home, the call to persevere is rooted in our calling to be witnesses for Christ. As I persevere, as I approach suffering and hardship, satisfied in Jesus, I have the opportunity to do what? To point others towards Jesus Christ, the one who endured the cross in order to save a people. I think this is what Paul means in Colossians when he, you know that passage where he says, fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? It's an odd passage. Fill up you, Christian, you in Colossae, you in Northfield, fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I'm like, well, there's nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ, right? It's completely sufficient. His death on the cross paid my debt. I don't have to do anything to earn God's forgiveness. I don't have to do anything for His blood to cover my sin. I just have to believe. That's it. Say, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I believe in Him because His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient. When He was on the cross, He said, it is almost finished. No, He said, it's finished. Right? But then Paul comes along and says, fill up what is lacking. 
and the afflictions of Christ. And here's what I think he means. That as you suffer on behalf of others, and as you are satisfied in Jesus in the midst of your suffering, what's lacking is people around you never saw Jesus suffer. Right? They didn't see it. They weren't alive. But then they see it in you. They see you suffering. They see you going through hardship. They see you clinging to Jesus. And they see you even, even suffering for them. Even going through hard things so that you might be able to share the gospel with them. So you get a missionary that goes to the Bolivian jungle. And if you don't know, I love to reference the Bolivian jungle. I don't know why. I've been doing it for like four or five years. That's my, that's my only country that I know to say just comes out. And maybe God would be calling us there someday. I don't know. But uh, somebody goes to the Bolivian jungle. There's unengaged people groups. And they hike into the, in the wilderness, into the bush to find these people groups to tell them about Jesus. You think it'd be hard? Oh, man, that'd be hard. But you suffer through it for their sake. You're not paying their debt. You're not dying on a cross for them. But you're suffering for them. You're suffering so that they would hear about the one who suffered to pay their debt. So I think that's what Peter's doing. Persevere. Follow Christ who suffered on your behalf. And as we remember Jesus, he goes on, as we remember Jesus, as we remember this one who suffered, we remember he did not suffer for his own sin, right? He suffered unjustly. It's an amazing thing about Jesus. He never sinned. Lived, this, lived in the same world that we live in. Was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Never once. Side note, by the way, that's why when you believe in him, so we believe in justification, right? By faith, you believe What's charged to your account? The righteousness of Christ. And it's a perfect righteousness. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He never sinned. So, so the sinlessness of Jesus is necessary. You can't lose that doctrine. We have to fight over that one. You can't lose that one because you lose that one, the gospel falls apart. But here's this sinless Savior. Even when the crowds hated Him, treated Him with contempt, he remained sinless. You notice what Peter said. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't revile those who reviled him. He didn't threaten those who threatened him. No, he committed himself to the Lord. Committed himself to him who judges justly. But why did Jesus suffer? Then he gets into this. Why did he suffer? So that's his, his argument is persevere, press on, follow the example of Jesus who suffered not because he's sinful, never sinned, but here's why he suffered, because you had strayed. He bore our sins in a body, on his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We've been healed. That's why he suffered. He suffers to save us. And bring us back. So he says there in verse 25, we were straying like sheep. It's who the world is. You're born into this world and you immediately go away from God. That's what we do. We stray. But here comes Jesus to bring us back by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit works within us, moves our heart, and we come back to our King, we come back to our 
shepherd. So that's Paul's or Peter's argument. Suffer, persevere in your suffering, follow in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered not because he's a sinner, but he suffered for you to bring you back to himself, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I want you to focus, and that's the kind of argument of chapter 2, but hone in on verse 25 for a moment. And just look at that word shepherd. I'm not going to talk about overseer yet, but just shepherd. I just want to unpack that one. I want, I want you to feel the weight of it. So I'm going to linger here. So when you go away from here and you go to Pickleberry Farm and we're going to baptize some people today after church and they're going to confess that they're sinners and they're, they're trusting today in Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of their souls and they walk away from there, I want them to know, and you to know, and me to remember, that as I walk away and I get to Monday, and I get to Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and life is hard, and I am busy, and I am tired, that I have a shepherd who cares for me, loves me, provides for me, protects me. So let's just go there. 1 Peter 2, verse 25. Let's talk about Jesus as shepherd. Note again those words. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Rebels running away, but now brought back. Not by our own strength, right? We didn't, we didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think it'll be, it's a good idea today to go back to Jesus. You know, I watched Fox News and CNN and it kind of both of them just kind of drove me nuts and I think I'll run to Jesus today. No, the Spirit worked in your life, called you home, you heard His call and you came running to the shepherd. And when Peter does this, when Peter calls Jesus the shepherd and when Jesus Himself references Himself as a shepherd, they're leaning into the Old Testament, Right? They're leaning into the Old Testament because the Old Testament promised God's people a coming shepherd. So here you can note this down. You don't have to flip there, but Micah, when the last time you read Micah is, the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, this is what he says. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. So there's kingship language, right? ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. Then, verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. So, so this is the promise. There's a king coming, but he's a shepherd king. So you put those two ideas together. Not only is Israel promised a king, they're promised a shepherd. Not simply are they promised a shepherd, they're promised a king, a shepherd king. That's who's coming. He shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. That, that's our future hope. That's the, we don't have the sign up here, but we have seven theological values. They're back there, the bottom one, heavenly minded. What are we looking for? We're looking forward to a curse-free kingdom that's coming where sin is no more. The curse is done away. And what do we do there in that new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem? We dwell securely with our shepherd king. 
And His name will be great to the ends of the earth. So here's the promise in the Old Testament. There's one coming who will be a king, a ruler. There's one coming who will be a shepherd. Then you read Jesus' word in John 10. So if you know your Old Testament, then Jesus' words make more sense. You see that He's not just being random in what he's saying. He's leaning into the Old Testament. This is one story, right? That's one story. It's not a collection of individual books that are randomly put together. This is telling one story. There's a fall at the beginning and everything's put back together at the end. And in the middle, what you find out is the way it's all put back together is through Jesus. And so what the Old Testament does is begin to promise, hey, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, they're going to come and fix it all. You read First read and Second Kings, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, what do you have? You have the rise of the kingship, Israel's looking for a king. All the way back in Genesis 49, there had been one promised who was going to rule God's people the, the people. the scepter would never pass from his hand. So you get that promise in Genesis, and then God's people begin to look for it. When's that promise coming? When's that ruler coming? When's that one from Judah coming who's going to have his hand on the neck of his enemies? Where's he at? Then you get to the book of First and Second Samuel. First Samuel, you get a king whose name is Saul, right? Maybe this is the guy. You can see everybody's just excited. We have a king. Maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one that they were speaking of in Genesis 49. This is it. Here he is. Not Saul. Right? You've read about Saul. Not him. He's not the dude. We get him out of the way. So then you get this other guy, little, little short, handsome boy, young kid, youngest of the brothers. What's his name? David. Right? Here comes David. Maybe it's him. Here's the king. Here's the king that's going to put it all back together. He's going to fix everything. He's going to do it. And he's a good king. But is he a perfect king? No, he falls, right? So, and then you get just king after king. They rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. Every single one of them. And what's the Bible doing? It's taking your eyes and it's saying, keep looking. Keep looking until you get to the New Testament. You get to Matthew you read the genealogy of Matthew? It's probably the most exciting, right? It's like, oh, this is exciting, genealogies. We love genealogies. You just get to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. This is why genealogies are exciting. It should blow your mind exciting. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Here's King Jesus. So Jesus is looking in the Old Testament, he's telling a story, and it's been promising you things, and here I am. And not only was this king going to rule, he was going to shepherd his people. So you get John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Peter, here's Jesus. You've come back to Him. Cling to Him. 
Suffer with him. He's your shepherd. He's with you. Old Testament had talked about a king that would be coming that would care for his people, that would shepherd his people. And here's Jesus who says, that's me. I'm the shepherd of my sheep. So here's a couple of things to take away about the shepherd, how to think about it. We've already talked about ruler. He's a ruling shepherd. And by the way, he gives us his word. This is the word of the king to his people, so we don't neglect it. That's why when we do things, we ask, should we do it that way? What has God said? So he rules his people through his word. That's why your elders, whoever they may be, right now it's me, Kevin, whoever they may be, you want people who can do what? What's the one qualification that's not just a moral qualification? Apt to teach. Why? Because you want to hear from the king. Second, he's a good shepherd. Our king is a good king. Cares, protects, provides. Think of the role of a shepherd in the wilderness with his sheep. Cares for them. He protects them. Wolves show up. He fights. If he's a good shepherd. If he's a hired hand, he runs away. A good shepherd fights. And this is the picture of God through the Bible, by the way. God is throughout the Bible, pictured as a shepherd of his people. What's Psalm 23? Start it. The Lord is my, the Lord is my shepherd. We just read it a minute ago in Psalm, Psalm 95. I read it at the beginning. If you keep reading, it talks about God shepherding his people. So here comes Jesus, who is God of very God, and he shepherds his people. He's good. He's not after your harm. Things are hard in this world and things can be hard in your life and you can go through relational issues and financial issues. All kinds of bad things fall on us at different seasons of life. But Jesus, you can be sure of this, Jesus is never for your harm. He's never for my harm. There is one who is for your harm. There is one who wants to harm you. There is one who hates you. There is one who wants to lead you away. He is roaming around and he wants to devour. But not Jesus. He's never after my harm. Whatever comes my way is for my good. It's for my joy. As hard as it may be, as painful as it may be, loss of a loved one, sickness, uncertain futures, Whatever comes my way, I can say, it's for my good. He's for my good. He's a good shepherd. He's not after my harm. He's a good shepherd. And we learn he's a loving shepherd. Loves his sheep. Did you notice that? Jesus says, I love my sheep. Doesn't run at the first sight of trouble. And he loves practically. He loves practically. Flip to John 3.16. You don't have to flip there probably. You have it memorized maybe. When I say he loves practically, this is what I mean. It's not mere sentiment, right? It's not simply something he says. He loves in this way. He lays down his life. He told you that in John 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then John 3.16, I think you can read it this way. For God so loved the world. That little word so right there, you can just circle it and you can say translate it this way. For God loved the world in this way. So it's not merely, it's not trying to tell you God the, so loved the world, like deeply, 
Amazingly, depths of love, profound love. That's true. God profoundly loves the world. God loves the world deeply, but that's not what the word so means there. God loved the world in this way. How? By sending His Son to die so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what I mean when we say God or Jesus loves His sheep. It's a, it's a love you can reach out and touch. He laid his life down, not mere gestures or words. Next, he's an omniscient shepherd. He, he knows everything. This is amazing. Put them together. Loves me. Loves me by laying his life down for me, even when he knows me. Everything about you. There's no dark corner in the world, in your house, in the woods on vacation, on a trip, no dark corner where you can hide from Him. No sin that you can commit either in your heart, in your head, or with your hands that He doesn't know about. You think, it's just here, it's just a thought. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything about you. knows all the dark little secrets about us. And while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So we don't try to hide our sin. We, we don't try to put on a show that says we're better than we really are. I think that's, that's the in, what we call it, the Instagram life, right? Right? This is, this is my life. It's all good. And then there's on social media, the unfiltered, right? This is the Christian life, the unfiltered life. It's just we are who we are. We are sinful people. Don't have it all together. And yet, in Christ, here's my identity. Forgiven. Loved. He loves his sheep by laying his life down for the sheep even when he knows the sheep are sinful. That's the good news, right? That's the gospel. Jesus dies for you and all you have to do to be reconciled to God is turn from sin and believe in him. Don't have to go to church a certain amount of times. Don't have to read your Bible a certain amount of times. Don't have to give enough money to somebody. Don't have to pray enough prayers. The only thing is it. It's believe. Turn from sin. Cling to Jesus who knows you. And he laid his life down anyway. Last thing. Particularly in John 10 there. Uh, verse 16. I have other sheep not of this fold that I must bring. I looked at that and I said, well, what is that? That's, that's mission. I love to talk about mission. It's everywhere. This is mission. He has sheep that are still wandering around lost and he's committed to finding them. I must bring them also. Bring them home. And now how does he do it? How does he do it? You. Me. Spirit-empowered witnessing to the world. How does he reach people in the Himalayan mountains? He sends Micah Burkle and his family to the Himalayan mountains to live at the foot of it and then to hike into the mountains to find people who have never heard the name of Jesus. How does he do it in Miami? Michael Galliano and his family back in Miami, Spanish-speaking brother, planning a Spanish-speaking church. 
He goes out and he begins to tell people about Jesus. How does he do it? He sends John and Caroline Norris, Luke and Laura Humphrey to the UAE, to all Ein, to pastor a people, to reach people for Jesus. How does he do it? He does it by putting you in your neighborhood. Do you ever think about that? He's determined your boundaries. Acts tells us that. You live in your neighborhood. It's not by chance. It's not by accident. You're there. And he says, how am I going to reach those, those sheep? Those sheep that are not, that are not here, this fold, they're, they're somewhere else. I must bring them. How am I going to do it? I'm going to send you. And you're going to be my witnesses to the world. And you're going to tell people about Jesus. And as you do it, I'm going to send my spirit. My spirit is going to amazingly, mystically, spiritually, is going to work through your words, change people's hearts, and bring them to the great shepherd and overseer of their souls. For their joy and my glory. So, yes, Jesus is our king. But he's a shepherd king. His rule is one of love and grace and mercy. He loves His people by laying down His life for His people to bring them home. And so as you leave here, the challenge for you is not to go home and do anything. Just go home and worship and feel the weight of Jesus' kingship and feel the weight of the fact that He's a great and good, and gracious shepherd. And through you, he wants to bring all kinds of people home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Tammy prayed earlier, your word doesn't just call us to a certain type of life. It tells us who you are. And you are our king, and you are our shepherd, and you love us and care for us, and your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. Life gets hard. Life gets long. Suffering comes. We remember our shepherd who binds up the brokenhearted, who cares, who provides for us, and who will keep us until the very end. Thank you for him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Right before we go to Kevin, we're going to do some other things first. You can see, that's great. No problem. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin. Um, one of the great things that uh, we get to do is uh, baptize, right? So the Lord Jesus gave us two ordinances. Uh, he gave us the Lord's Supper and baptism. And uh, baptism, uh, just to kind of explain it, it it's, it's an opportunity. It doesn't save, right? It, it's a profession that I've already been saved. It, it's, a, it's an ordinance that proclaims to the watching world, I'm with Jesus. I've died to sin. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. These things are true of me. 
I'm on team Jesus. I'm with him and he's with me. And so baptism is that initiatory right into the church. And then we have the Lord's Supper, which Kevin's going to come up in just a moment, and he's going to lead us through the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a sign that we do every week as a, as a testimony that we're still believing in Jesus. We're still trusting in Jesus. So I've entered into the faith. I've proclaimed, professed that I'm on team Jesus. Then every week we come to the Lord's table and we say, I'm still today trusting in Christ. That's how those two ordinances work together. And so today, after church, uh, we're going to head out to uh, Pickleberry Farm, Dustin Anna Hershberger's place, and we're going to baptize three people. And so Dial and Eric and Lindsay, if you would make your, well, one at a time, let's do it that way. Uh, man, logistics are not my strong suit. I'm going to ask Eric to go first. Eric, if you'd make your way up. Eric's going to, they're going to read their testimony, uh, and we want to do it here so that you can hear it with a microphone. It's harder when we get to the barn. Um, and so we're going to hear Eric's testimony, and then I'm going to pray for him, and then we'll go to Lindsay and then Dial. All right. I grew up in a home where I was blessed to know the name of Jesus since I was an infant. I went to a private school, went to church every week, and said prayers on a daily basis. I knew who Jesus was and many things he did, but I feel like he became a historical figure to me. I knew of him, but I didn't know him. I was simply going through the motions. I knew something was missing, but I wasn't in the right place to figure out what or who it was. Shortly before Amber and I were married, we started attending a church together. We found a few new friends, but never grew in faith. We tried a couple other churches as the years followed, but ended up with the same results. We ended up not attending church anywhere for quite a while. Then about a year and a half ago, some of my beliefs that I had held since I was a kid were challenged during a Bible study my sister arranged. Jenny organized this study and really introduced me to who Jesus is. As we read and studied, I realized Jesus isn't just a historical figure to learn about. He is living today and wants a relationship with me. He lived a perfect life for me. He died for my sins and rose so I may have everlasting life through him. Since then, my eyes and heart have been opened to Jesus, and I can't imagine life without him. He is walking with me each day in my victories and defeats. Through this baptism, I want the world to know that I am walking with him too. Amazing. Thank you. I pray for you. Father, I thank you for Eric. I'm grateful for just the friendship that uh, has budded over the last several months and getting to know him and his family. And I just am grateful for his faithfulness, even in the midst of hard seasons of life, uh, to see his patience, to see his joy, to see his perseverance, to see really the fruit of the Spirit in his life has been encouraging to my own soul. So I am grateful for him. I pray that uh, today would be a, a day that he remembers as he remembers professing and proclaiming his trust in Christ and that from today till the end of his days, he would never stop trusting in Jesus. Amen.